Let's turn in our Bibles before we dismiss the children this uh, morning to, to go, uh, God's Word, John chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, number 4, four separate accounts of the one gospel. His name is Jesus. John 5. We are back in John 5. We will finish up John 5 today. There's a lot there. John chapter 5. Um, let's see. Let's start in verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. I do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. These are the words of Jesus. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I receive is from man... Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you because you don't believe the one whom he has sent. You go ahead and search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom which you have set your hope. For if you have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? May God add a blessing to the public reading of his holy word this morning. Okay, so we're good. Kids, you can go to your class. You're dismissed. Everyone else, we're in John 5 again for the last time, so stay there with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. There's one right by the sound booth, which you did a great job back there. You too, Joe. John chapter 5. Family, remember the context of this beautiful saying and teaching and words of Jesus began when he healed an invalid, a a paraplegic man, on Sunday, Saturday, excuse me, Saturday, the Sabbath day. An action that the Jewish leaders of his day considered, um, you know, a a deliberate violation of the Sabbath law. Verse 16 tells us that, chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus, of course, did not break any biblical or scriptural command of God, but rather the rabbinical traditions that, he had de- that they had kindly and, and, and purposely developed around them. There was 600 and something laws. There have been other times that Jesus, you know, broke their, their stupid regulations that, that surrounded the, God's law, and many times, including the Sabbath. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus was walking through the fields with his disciples, and they began to, plick, uh, began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Jesus, you know, what are you doing? What, you know that's not lawful on the Sabbath. 
Jesus says, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and he and all those with him entered the house of God in a time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence in the temple he's talking about, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him? And Jesus said to them, you know, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So there are times that Jesus is performing things and doing things on the Sabbath. He straightens them out, not on this occasion. It's hard to argue with God. You know what I mean? Like It's like, we know you gave the law, but let me me straighten you out. It didn't really go very well. But here on this occasion, this, this context of this healing of this invalid on the Sabbath, Jesus did not defend himself by schooling them about the Sabbath, but rather he asserted in this context he asserted the reality of his union, equality, and oneness with the Father. Chapter 5, verse 6, 17. I healed on the Sabbath. My Father is working until now too. So am I working. Verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Like Father, like Son. The Jews saw themselves through creation and covenant as children, sons of God. Jesus is making a claim crystal clear that he is not that kind of son. He is the son by nature. By healing on the Sabbath and then claiming to have the same privileges and rights, exclusive rights, as the one who had given them the Sabbath law. Jesus said, my father. A unique relationship and oneness and equality that no other son has. Jesus said, my father is working on the Sabbath. He doesn't violate the Sabbath law and neither do I. How Jesus, how did he respond to this claim to be God? He didn't apologize. He didn't backpedal. We saw you last week that he strengthened. He, they said, you're making yourself out equal to God and you know what, that's blasphemy. Instead of saying, oh no, 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 that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. He steps it up. And now he's claiming the equality with the son is what, is what we said last week was coextensive, parallel, equal in activity. The father's working, I'm working. In fact, verse 18 says, whatever the father does, the son does. Creation, healing, extending love and forgiveness, all that the father does, I do. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus said also that he has the exclusive rights and prerogatives and privilege of God by his authority. Not just his activity, but his authority. Look at verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so too the Son gives life to whom he wills. He was given all judgment, we said last week. Verse 22. The Father judges no one. Given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27. Given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Perfect man. Verse 28 says, do not marvel this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man, his voice, and come out. Whether it's Herod, Hitler, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, even Karl Marx will be raised from the dead and stand before Jesus and bow his knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is claiming. And then finally, we saw last week when we closed, Jesus receives worship, verse 23 that all may honor, revere, treasure the Son just as, 
Just in case you miss, what does that mean? I don't know. How do I honor him? What am I doing? Just as Jewish people, monotheistic one God worshipers, just as the honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father does not honor the Father. The one that honored the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay? Again, exclusive rights only given to God himself. Here Jesus is claiming it. But in verse 30, look down there with me. I have it up on the screen now. It reminds us of this, this exclusive right, this, this sonship privilege, this prerogatives that God has in himself. It's not something Jesus takes on as a self-governing reality or a self-determining but in the, and, and, and an independent of the Father. He, he's not saying that. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. I judge it as just. I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have, I have the same activity going on. I have the same authority to raise the dead, to judgment. I have all these things that has been given to me, but it's not about me. You can't help but read this scripture and think back to the garden. Right to the garden of Gethsemane. John, Peter, and James out in the, in, in, in the place where Jesus sweating drops of blood from his, from his brow. He's troubled, the Bible says, distressed. My soul is sorrowful, he says, even to death. Abba, Father. All things are possible. Remove this cup, this cup of judgment, this cup of wrath from me, but not my will. Your will be done. You see, the son's perfect submission and obedience to father, his complete commitment not to please himself, but the one who sent him, guarantees us today that everything God says, everything God does, Jesus does completely, fully, obediently. And therefore, when we look at Jesus, we could say, the invisible made visible. Because all that the father showed him, he's done. All that Jesus does is because the father has showed him. Now, all the claims, and it was important to lay that context out, all those claims that Jesus is making for himself, he's the invisible made visible, all those things were absolutely off the chart in that day and in today. It was astonishing, his authority, his activity. And this morning, as we continue through this text, we're going to see that all the claims that Jesus just made, we just went over quickly, according to the Jewish law and customs, are going to be backed up with witnesses and testimonies. That's what this text is about. Witnesses and testimonies to what Jesus just said about himself. Look down in verse 31. Sets up the chapter. If I alone bear witness... Everything I just said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, the word testimony and witness is very important in John. John uses it 47 times as a verb or a noun in this gospel account. 30 more times in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Very important. Jesus already declared himself to be equal, one with God. And at this point, someone may say to him, all right, we hear all your claims. You say that you are equal in activity, and in in authority than God. What's your evidence? What, what, What evidence is such a claim grounded in, Jesus? Why should we, King's Chapel, why should we, the religious leaders, believe such testimony? Why should anyone consider Jesus to be reliable? Give us the testimony. It's almost as if they're putting Jesus on trial. 
Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. This crime, they thought, was blasphemy. It's not sufficient for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, picks up that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where he writes, um, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, you read in the New Testament, if there's a charge against an elder, two or three witnesses. Where's the testimony? Where's the witness? Where's the, where, where's the eyewitness testimony? It's, this language is, is courtroom language. Uh, uh, um, a verdict needs to be, be rendered. Jesus, what testimony, what witnesses do you have to say such things? You say this. On what? That's what we're going to be over today. And Jesus now wants to cite, he's going to do four independent testimonies, witnesses in our text that reinforce and corroborate his testimony, his witness about himself. And I think it's important, let me just, let me just point out before we move on. In verse 31, it says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that his self-witness is unreliable. In fact, John 8, when we get there, he's going to say it's absolutely reliable and absolutely true. His point in this text is he's talking to the religious authorities that are questioning him. So by grace, really, by, he could just say, I don't need you, boom, done. But you'll see he's trying to bring them to that place, even allowing the religious leaders to put him in a courtroom and put him on trial. Jesus says, there are others that testify to me, verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Talking about the Father. Some people say John the Baptist. I think he's talking about the Father. He'll talk about in verse 34 that he doesn't need man's witnesses. And we're going to see that the Father is going to weigh in on the witness and the testimony of all that Jesus says. So four witnesses, I broke it down into three categories. Four witnesses, three categories, seems to fit. Here they are. It's the witness of the forerunner, John the Baptist. Jesus is gonna declare. The witness of the works and the words of the Father. So one, two, three, and then the faithful writings. All right, you want witness? I'll give them to you. Number one, the witness of the forerunner. Look what it says. Forerunner, John the Baptist, right? Here we see from Jesus' own lips that John's testimony, John the Baptist, not John the apostle who wrote this, this gospel account, John the Baptist's testimony is true. Verse 33, you sent to John the Baptist, and he has been born witness, he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Verse 35, he was, past tense, he might have been dead. He might have been um, dead by now or at least in prison. He, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The, the purpose of John's testimony and the purpose of John's ministry um, was to prepare the nation of Israel, to prepare the world, really, for the Messiah. It is chapter 1. He says, John the Baptist came into the world to bear witness of the true light. And, and he did so and got his head cut off for it. Not only did he witness to the delegation, look what it says in verse 33. You sent to John, because back in chapter 1, we see this delegation coming to John from Jerusalem saying, who is this guy? Right? 
So he testifies to them. And then if you remember back in chapter one, he sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John bore witness. Listen to John chapter one, verse 32. And John bore witness, testified truth. I saw the Spirit. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize the Father with water said to me, on him whom you see the Spirit descend and rest and remain. This is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will empower you and give you life himself. John says, and I've seen him, I've borne witness that this is the singular and exclusive of the same nature. This is the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I sent you a testimony. John came to you. He was a human testimony. And I'm declaring this to you, speaking this way about John, because there was a time in John's ministry that you gave him credibility for a season. You spoke about John, and I'm saying this to you because, look what, it, look what the text says. I want you to know the truth. I, I, I want you to be saved. I, I want you to come into relationship with me. Now, the word light, lamp, luknos, means um, unlike Jesus who is the light, uh, phos, of the world, the very essence of life, this lamp is the source of the light, a reflector. This lamp projects the light. Back in that day, they used to have these oil lamps, a small portable oil lamp, and its light was dependent on something else for its source. Right? You ever have an oil lamp? Maybe you have one today. You, 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 know, you fill it with the oil, you put the wick in it, you light the wick, and as long as the oil is present, you got light, you got a lamp. It's shining, right? I have those lamps that's supposed to take away mosquitoes at your house. They never work. I use them every year. I get, I get eaten up all the time. But anyway, the citronella candles, right? That's what you have. And, and the lamp lights the way for people, but when its source runs out, you're done. The wick just burns, and then it goes out. What a, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the purpose and role of John the Baptist. He was a witness, but for so long. He was snuffed out. He had his place. He had his time. But it was for a season. John lit the way for Jesus to come. In Psalm 132, verse 17, speaking of the Messiah, it says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. Horn is strength. A sprout from David. That's Jesus, who's the son of David. And I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Jesus, the horn of our salvation from the line of David is gonna come. And I prepared a lamp. A lamp to come and to shine for the forerunner. John echoes that. He says, I am not the light in John 1. John 1, 6 says that a man did come from God. His name was John. But he came only to bear witness about the light, that those who believe in him, the light, will have life in his name. And the religious leaders came to him, and they're like, listen, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? The prophet? We need to know. And he says, what did he say? He said, I am the voice. I'm the one crying out. I'm the herald. I'm the forerunner. Crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of Yahweh, the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now remember, in context here, Israel, the Jewish people, had not heard from a prophet in four centuries. 
So when John came on the scene, he was generally regarded as the prophet of God. And, and he carried some substantial weight. I mean, before they took him to jail and cut his head off, but even then he was considered a prophet. John, excuse me, Matthew, I think it's 21. Yeah, Matthew 21, Jesus talks about that. And, and, and he says he went into the temple priest. He went into the temple. He met with the priest and the elders. And they, and they said, you know what? How are you doing this with your authority, acting this way, doing your activity with the authority? What right do you have to do this? Again, questioning his testimony and his witness and all that he does. And Jesus, I love it. Instead of answering the question, it's the only time other than politicians, well, maybe not politicians, where you answer a question with a question, but Jesus can do that, Right? They ask him a question, he looks at them and he goes, I have a question for you. And you know what, if you answer me, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, you know that prophet. You tell me, came from God, come from man. And it says that they got around a little huddle. I could almost see it like, hmm, he stumped us, come on. And he stumped them. And I could see Jesus waiting. And this is not scriptural, just I'm saying that I could see a smile on his face thinking, what a bunch of, I love him, but oh my word. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, man, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe John the prophet? But if we say from man, man, there's a crowd out there and they're gonna want our head, right? So he came. He, 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 he had stirred up the place. God did send John the Baptist, just as he promised. But John, as Jesus will say, is not the key witness. He was just human, verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus' main witness is the Father. But Jesus mentions John here because for a while, the Jews were flocking to hear him, and Jesus wanted, as I said, to save and redeem and forgive them. He wanted the Pharisees to come into a personal relationship with the Father through the Son. Now, I just, as I was writing this, as I was studying it this week, I thought, well, that's convicting. I mean, not that I don't like making fun of religious people, I do. <sighs> How dare you heal him on the Sabbath? The guy's laying on the ground for 40 years and they're worried about him being healed because it was the wrong day of the week. Kills me. But anyway, he loves them. You know, and sometimes they think, I'm guilty, maybe you are. We look at the religious leaders who are antagonistic and cruel, and we think, go get them. You whitewashed tomb, you know, like, yeah, get them, you know. But here it says, he wants them to be saved, because he loves them. You may be a religious person here, stuck in your religious ways, trying to so hard to not judge people, look down at people, pat yourself on the back. Maybe your arm hurts because you've done it so much, I don't know. God loves you too. God loves you too. And he wants to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus by grace, but by grace alone, right? I mean, that's what the book is about, remember? John 20. If you don't know that verse, know it. Study it. At least underline your Bible and know what's the purpose of John, chapter 20, verse 30, you know? Jesus did all these signs in the presence of disciples, but he wrote these down. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the, of the same nature of God, the Son of God. And by believing what? have life in his name. Multiple witnesses. The witness of the forerunner. Now look at secondly, the witness of the words, the works and words of the Father. There are two. We're going to do both. But the testimony that I have, verse 36, is greater than that of John. Okay, John has his place. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father 
has sent me. Now the word works there is plural. Jesus is talking about the works that, that he has done up to this point, all the miracles, all the sayings, all the authority, activity that he is proclaiming and witnessing to and that which is to come, all those things that will be completed in the future testify to the reality and truth that the Father has sent him. All right, it's the same thing, John 3, if you're walking through this book with me, uh, with us. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, you know, I, I've been watching you in Jerusalem. I've been checking you out. I've seen all the miracles and the works that you do. No one, he says, can do these things unless God is with you. Although signs are never, never meant to be ends in themselves, but they do have the place and they testify that the Father sent the Son on mission from the Father. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. What if somebody shows up at your house and, and I'm not saying this is going to happen. What if somebody shows up in your house and they and, and knock on your door, you open up, they say, look, we got great news. The company you work for just gave a 50% increase across the board to everyone for 2016. You'd be like, great, good, that, 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 that's good, if it were true. But if it, was, it would be meaningless unless that person has really come from the owner. If we call the place of business and find out that they never even heard of that person, then what are we going to do? We're not going to be looking for our paycheck. I'll tell you that right now. We'll dismiss it. We've been duped, right? However, if the messenger has really sent by the boss house to house and he sent him, then we know that this offer and this gift is genuine. It's the same way. The question of whether the, the, the supplementary testimony and the witness of Jesus, like John the Baptist, even the Father's works and words are really from God is really important. And Jesus is trying to make this clear that there are witnesses, there is testimony, so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And here in this context, especially, it is clear, all that Jesus does is nothing more and nothing less than what the Father gave him to do. When you and I understand the uniqueness, equality, oneness, and union of the Son of God with the Father, when we come to that place and we grasp the reality of one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, everything Jesus does and says instantaneously attests who he is and who the Father is. You can't know the Father without knowing the Son. The point of this testimony is that people ought to be able to see God through the works and deeds of Jesus. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me, not only is he these works, has borne witness about me. Notice, notice the English past tense, has borne witness. Now, John, in chapter 1, verse 34, spoke about the witness of Jesus being baptized and the Spirit descending and the Spirit remaining on him, bearing witness that he is the Son of God. What's really cool is that in Mark chapter 1, we see the same account from Mark's perspective, okay? We see the same account. And when that happened, that baptism happened, the heavens opened up, the Scripture says, and God speaks, you are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. <laughs> so whether Jesus has this, you know, thought and what happened in his mind, I'm not sure. But I do know that the testimony that the Father gives is the word that God spoke at his baptism. 
John the Apostle will write in his, second, in his first letter in the end of our Bibles. He writes this. We're talking about testimony. We're talking about John's testimony. And listen to this. He says, if you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. That's what Jesus is saying. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Testimony concerning his son. Whoever believes in his son, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. There's a testimony that God bears, and now we have that within ourselves. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Testimony concerning his son. And then he hits it right on the nail on the head. And this is the testimony that God gave us. I want to know what that is. Do you want to know what that is? Eternal life. This is the witness that God gave us, eternal life. And, that's, and this life is in his son. Do you see what he's saying? The testimony of father, this, this convinced, settled experience of having life in the son is the witness. It's been confirmed in our heart by the spirit that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. We covered this last week. There are a lot of people that say Jesus is the son of God, but they do not mean what we mean. They do not mean what Jesus said. Many occults believe in Jesus, the created being. That's a lie. That's what Jesus says. Then he goes on to say, his voice, verse 37b, you have not heard. He's talking to religious leaders. His form you have not seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, notice in verse 37b, there's a complete change and turnaround. Jesus is not on the stand anymore being questioned. Jesus turns it on them. You, you, his, his voice, you have never heard it. You, his form, you have never seen. You see that? So now Jesus being challenged concerns his witness. Now he's, on the, now he's going from the defense to the, to the, to the challenge as if the, the tables were turned. And he rebukes them, and he gives them three rebukes. Look, what it, look all three of these with me. Number one, they have not heard God's voice, right? So no one could see God in his full glorious splendor, okay? But there have been times in the Old Testament, in Israel's history, where God audibly and visibly interacted with his people. He says, you have never seen him. Noah, Abraham, Moses, the deliverer, heard the voice of God. Right? But he'll go on to say, you're not true follower of Moses either because you have not heard God's voice through his son. Moses knows it. You do not see it. So you don't hear his voice. Look at number two. They never seen God's form. Okay? So unlike, again, Abraham, Jacob, who was Israel, saw God formed, uh, a form of God, and, and, and they were true Israelites. And here is God. In form, in human form, in front of them. The Philippians 2 tell us that. Number three, they do not have God's word abiding in them. The psalmist says what? God's word I will hide in my heart. I will, I will treasure in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And you're not even one of them either. You see the indictment? You have never seen, you've never heard God in person. And now I'm standing in front of you being accused by you. The very one who claims to worship and serve is the one who is standing here declaring, making God known, and you want nothing to do with him. Now, 
before we judge, let's relate. Family, friends, what is standing in your way this morning? What is standing in your way this morning that you won't believe the witness and the testimony of the Father toward the Son? Have you ever heard the voice of God in His Word? Do you seek the voice of God in His Word? Is the Word of God His very voice to us, the final authority in matters in your life? Whether it's in your banking, whether it's in your time, whether it's in the you know, pleasures you do, is the Word of God the final authority? The psalmist says, I store up his word that I may not sin. Is that what you say? Have you seen God? You know, that question is answered in Scripture. John 14. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough if you just show us the Father. And Jesus, you can see, is sort of maybe, maybe a little bit like, ah, have I been with you so long, Philip? And you still don't understand. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? So have you seen God? If you've seen Jesus in Scripture, you have. You can't say I never did. Not only is God present in the person of Jesus Christ, but God is present, not perfectly, in the church. We manifesting the likeness of Jesus. Unlike the hard-hearted Jews here in the text, believers in Christ, you know, I hear his voice in Scripture. I'm seeking his voice in Scripture. I have seen his form because I'm walking with Jesus. And his word abides in me, flows out of me. His word is authority over me. So you have the witness of the forerunner. You have the witness of the Father's works and words. And finally, the witness of the faithful writings. Look with me at verse 39. You search the scriptures. You, (laughs) it's not about me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse, literally won't come to me and have life. Man, the Jewish... (laughs) You have no idea, I don't think I would really understand how upset that might have been to those Jewish religious leaders who studied and studied and studied the Torah, the five books, and knew so much of their Bible. They were so wrapped up in their scriptures, they counted every single word. They could, they could go to a, the book of Isaiah and tell you what the, 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 the number of the words in the scripture. And he says to them, you Search them. You think you have life in them? There's a famous uh, rabbi named Hillel, and he said this. This is really interesting. He said that the more study of the law, the more life you have. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. (laughs) Jesus said, yeah, it's a self-revelation, but there's nothing intrinsically life-giving in the study of the Scriptures. It's good to study the Scripture, but you're missing the point. Their passion for the scripture was undeniable, but Jesus maintained that their zeal and their love for the scripture was misguided, for it alone was sufficient, for it alone was insufficient, excuse me, for the attaining of eternal life. What is required is true vision in scripture with a Christological, and that means is a a Christ-centeredness of scripture. Let me tell you what is at stake. D.A. Carson writes, 
What is at stake is a comprehensive hermeneutical key. He likes to talk with big words. Let me break it down. It's really simple. The art and science of interpreting passages. How do you come to a passage and interpret what it means? He says you need a key. By predictive prophecy, by revelatory events, things that happen, and by anticipatory statue, what the Old Testament is pointing to is Christ. His ministry, his teaching, his death and resurrection. So whether it is promise fulfillment, whether it is uh, typology, analogy, foreshadowing, e- even contrasting of scripture, the Old Testament to the New, whatever it is, there's only one hero. What's his name? Jesus, that's his name. Come on, I stumped you on there. Okay? John, Luke 24, he's walking with Emmaus. He's breaking the scriptures down. He's pointing to himself. He says to his disciples, I'm speaking with you. The words I speak to you, that I'm still with you. Is everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus pointed always back that the Old Testament pointed to him. Okay, every book of the Bible, every story of the Bible points to Jesus, okay? And I have a two-minute video, and then we'll wrap things up after this video. I want to show you. Um, this is by Dr. Tim Keller, and I just love it because it really explains the Old Testament reality pointing to Jesus, okay? With two-minute video, we're going to play it, and we're going to... Ready? Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, Now we know that you love me. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's... He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Had the Jews rightly read the scriptures, they would have come to recognize the truth that is claimed. And and they refused to come to him in their life. They refused the evidence that they're reading in scripture and they refused to come to him who can give life, and who the scripture points to. Look at verse 41, gives us the reason. I do not receive glory from God, from people, 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. Like a good Bible teacher, Jesus is anticipating the charge that Jesus always outchests for himself, declaring that he is seeking human approval. He said, I'm not seeking human approval. Unlike you, who are seeking glory from God, uh, from man, seeking praise from man, and you are devoid of the love of God. And that's why you reject the Messiah. But people come in my name and you accept them. And there's been tons of historical evidence. Josephus writes about it. There's a, a, a um, um, let me see, a rabbinical writing that says there have been up to 60 claims of people who are the Messiah that got a lot of uh, uh, credence in what they said. Jesus, Matthew 24 there's going to come people say, look at the Christ, look at the Christ. Many false Christs will come before the end. Why were the Jewish leaders prepared to accept false prophets? Those who come in their own name, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Man, that's convicting for me. And I'm a believer. They accept the glory, the honor, the praise from one another. Being so self-absorbed in in the fulfillment of their religious duties, patting themselves on the back, they had no room for the glory of God. (laughs) Turning a blind eye. Ricky mentioned uh, this morning about the new song, I Cling to Christ. I love that bridge too. More than I can do to keep my hold on you. But all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. It's on our webpage. If you love that song, learn it, sing it, and sing it next Sunday with us. But the verse, I think, one of the verse, the last verse kind of chokes me up every time. Father, all my earthly aims in time will turn to dust. All my earthly aims in time will turn to dust. Let me learn, listen, that loss is gain for those who know your love. All the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy. You alone are endless joy, so I cling to Christ. That's the glory of God. John Piper wrote it this way. The reason the love of human glory is contradictory to faith, can't believe you're seeking your own glory, your own fame, your own praise. The reason that is contradictory to faith is that faith is a drinking of living water. Faith is a drinking of living water for the satisfaction of our souls. And the well of the water is the glory of Christ. And when we are satisfied with him, enslaving power of the craving for human glory and praise is broken. Broken by the power of a superior satisfaction, end quote. The Jews prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture, and Jesus hits them on the head. It's really about your own glory, your own self-righteousness, your own patting on your back. And then in his last shot, as we close, verse 45, do not think, I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, you won't believe mine. You won't believe my wordings, my words either. That's a huge indictment. Moses, the one who is your teacher, the one that gave you the law, the Sinai covenant, the one that you are so proud to be part of, is now your accuser. Huh. 
If you believed him, if you understood what he's writing to, you would understand me. You would believe his writings because they pointed to me. But you really are not following Moses because you rejected me. Right? I'm not sure if Jesus had something particular in mind or just the whole five books of the, of the, first, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. But at a deeper level, they also misunderstood of the purpose of the law. At that point, they were, they were running to the law and using the law for salvation. But the law and part of the law pointed to the sacrifices. It wasn't about being saved by the law. It was about revealing the moral standard of God, the covenant relationship with God, but it always pointed to Christ. Galatians 3, the law came to be our tutor, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. They rejected the truth of Moses, whom they respected. They could hardly be expected to accept the teachings of Jesus who they reviled. Jesus is that hermeneutical key. Jesus is the central theme. He un- theme. He unlocks the message of the word. I've heard of situations where rabbis, Jewish rabbis, are called to churches to deliver messages. Crazy and ridiculous. They miss the key. They miss the point. Unless the Spirit of God opens their heart and mind, unless they love the Son, honor the Son, worship the Son, they can't point Him. And without Him, there's death and hell. And with Him, there is life. 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews, a, 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 a folly to the Gentiles. But those who hear, those who believe, those who call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. John Calvin said it this way, he who, is re- he who in reality presents himself before God as his judge must of necessity fall down humbled and dismayed and finding nothing in himself on which he can place reliance, end quote. Let me close by asking this question. Ask yourself. Ask yourself whether you're seeking glory from others as opposed to seeking the glory of God. Examine whether you take pride in your outward moral religious performance rather than boasting in the cross, the gospel, and Jesus Christ. There are some of you here that won't come to him. And I I want to implore you, stop seeking your own glory and praise or the praise of others. Seek the glory of God. He is the greatest treasure. And when you taste his glorious goodness and mercy and forgiveness and you see the beauty of God and the acceptance that we sang about from God in Christ, the obsession of human approval, human glory will be broken. Because you can't have both. You can't have, I'm seeking my own glory, I'm seeking my own thing, I want the praise of men, I want the accolades of others, and yet seek the glory of God. You can't have both. One is life-giving and one is death. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you get neither. One last verse, I promise, and that's it. I want to wrap this up, so just blink your eyes, whatever you need to do, Listen. Because this ties it all together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, can't see. I want my own glory. I can't see the words. I can't see the works. I can't see the beauty of Christ. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the invisible made visible. Verse 5, and what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus, the Lord, ourselves his servant. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face the voice, the image, the person, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's telling us that this work, this gospel work, this Christ-centered work, this work of Jesus on the cross, his atoning death in your place, dying for your sins, and his resurrection from the grave, this gospel is designed by God to reveal Listen, to reveal the glory, the prominence, the preeminence, the infinite worth of Christ. The gospel would not be good news and glorious news if not, if he did not reveal and display the glory of Christ for us to see and for us to treasure. The greatest place on this earth where God gets the greatest glory is the gospel. His crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension from the dead. If you see that, and you glory in that, and you treasure in that, that will break the bond, the the bondage of self-glory. Once you treasure and see the gospel, that will bring you to faith, and that will keep you from being selfish, self-centered, and wanting the accolades of men. Father, we pray as your children together. There's so much here that so many of us can identify with. Every day, exaltation self, exalting self. Help us to see the beauty, the majesty, the the glorious wonder of the gospel. Let us not seek our own glory. Let us seek your glory value your incalculable worth in all that you say you are and all that you are and all that you do and help us to break away from not believing but trusting in you loving you running to you so that we can have life and forgiveness and be swept into your wonderful presence Lord.